Hey everyone, welcome to the new episode of Ball. Uh, Ball stands for Best Advice and Life Lessons. This is a podcast show where we focus on talking about the best advice and life lessons from world-class performers and leaders from various walks of life, and most predominantly technical uh, tech and business. The idea is to deconstruct and tease out the best routines, habits, tactics, techniques, and the best advice or life lesson that they have ever received that you as listeners can actually use and apply to your own life and work. So I'm more interested in learning about things my guests have never said or shared before as much as possible. So today I'm thrilled to have Brian McDonald in this episode of Ball. Um, he has created several multi-billion dollar products, product categories spanning hundreds of millions of users uh, at Microsoft all the way from Microsoft Project, Microsoft Outlook, and then went on to build what is now the fastest growing application and platform in the history of Microsoft, Microsoft Teams. So Brian is known as the father of Outlook, and he helped create Teams by taking a small group of engineers to his plantation in Hawaii. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go into the Teams aspect of it. For many of you who may not know, Brian retired from Microsoft earlier this year, and is now a consultant to Microsoft. We'll ask him about that. Uh, before that, he was a corporate vice president of Microsoft Teams and led an organization that built Teams, Microsoft Teams. And today Teams is used extensively by businesses, government organizations, educational institutions worldwide, providing powerful collaboration platform and voice communication capabilities. So with that, uh, Brian is my, he's my all time favorite product visionary at Microsoft. One of the best leaders that I've ever had the privilege to work with at Microsoft closely. He's been my boss, has offered advice, feedback, mentored on various topics and issues over the years. Welcome to the show, Brian. Well, thank you, Srini. I appreciate you having me and I thank you for introducing me as the father of Outlook and not uh, as some people have <laughs> occasionally done the grandfather of Outlook, which uh, <laughs> it feels a little too soon to be the grandfather of Outlook, but uh, thank you. It's great. To, uh, I always enjoyed working with you and I appreciate being invited to your podcast. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I can't wait to dig in. Uh, we've had several discussions and debates and conversations over the years and business reviews, but this is slightly different in terms of talking to you uh, in, a, in a different way. Uh, first of all, I'm dying to know how is retirement and uh, what do you what do you do these days? <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's been an interesting time that I retired right in, in March, right um, at the the start of, of COVID. And so at times it's felt a little closer to a house arrest than a retirement. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, I'm still I'm thankful that my family has been healthy and uh, uh, you know, it's I, I'm still thankful, but it, it hasn't quite been the retirement. I wanted to explore the world and do a lot of different things. It hasn't been like that, but, um, uh, you know, it's been much harder for many other people. So on a relative basis, uh, I'm still feeling blessed. But, uh, you know, I'm just uh, spending the time watching watching the wheels go around. I'm getting to do a lot more reading, which I appreciate. And uh, um tending uh, to my fruit farm in 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 maui and spending more time on that got it that sounds pretty pretty interesting and cool brian in fact i wanted to ask you even if it was not the pandemic how's your trip planned trip to antarctica 
right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, that was, you know, there was different adventures I wanted to do. The, the one I wanted to do before Antarctica was, um, you know, the Russians have converted their nuclear-powered uh, uh, icebreakers to be able to go straight to the North Pole, and then you can hop off and uh, uh, stand on the North Pole. And that was, it, it, that kind of thing, um, you know, cruise types of things, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're not doing those so much right now. So yeah, a lot of the planned adventures are are, are on hold, but that's okay, they'll, they'll be time. Got it, Brian. Um, I mean, hopefully this will all pass and one day I think uh, he'll be on the trip. <laughs> I'll be watching. Uh, yeah, that. for all of us, yes. That's another story. Hey, um, Brian, given your storied tenure at Microsoft, um, can you take me back a little bit in terms of how you got started at Microsoft? Uh, talk about Microsoft Project because that was your first venture. How did that uh, happen? How did you sell that to Microsoft? Yeah. And then the hits kept on coming with Outlook, <laughs> all of that. So could you please talk about that? Yeah, so um, I knew uh, Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates through my wife. So my wife was one of the first employees to join Microsoft. She joined in 1983 when there was only 200 people. And so, wow. you know, they would have, you know, at the Christmas party, everybody would gather around <laughs> together in a circle <laughs> kind of thing. And, um, you know, and they would invite spouses to Friday um, pizza parties and other things. So I knew Bill and Steve socially. I was working with a partner um, on my own company for a long time. And uh, they were always saying, hey, you should do something with us at, at some point. But, you know, we were happy sort of doing our own thing. And we actually came out with, um, one of the first spreadsheets for the Macintosh, and uh, we'd actually beat Microsoft's product um, uh, multiplan for the Macintosh. But then Microsoft, and we we had three glorious months uh, uh, one summer where we were at the top of the the charts um, on um, on the Macintosh for spreadsheets. And then Microsoft came out with Excel, and we just went our sales went to zero just so quickly. <laughs> And they said, you know, see, we told you, you should do something with us rather than against us. So, well, we like being independent. And so uh, we decided to, to, Microsoft was really transitioning to do GUI-based software. And uh, so we decided to work on uh, a transformation of project management for Windows, but we wanted to be our own company. And uh, so we said, we'll, we'll, we'll work for you. We'll do this uh, Microsoft project for 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 Windows, but we'll be our own company. But eventually, they decided, ah, oh, we just want to buy out your company, and so then we we came in to, officially to Microsoft in 1989 uh, through uh, Microsoft acquiring Project. Wow, that's quite a story. Um, I mean, Project from the from the from that beginning to where it is, it's another multi-billion-dollar business for Microsoft. It turned out to be pretty good. Um, that's a great one. So how did Outlook happen, Brian? How did um, you've been credited uh, credited as a father of Outlook? Like <laughs> you said, not grandfather. <laughs> yes. How did Outlook happen? Yeah, it was well. Part of it was uh, sort of a jealousy on, on my part. You know, we 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 shipped Project, and they did another version of Project, and then uh, a lot of my peers at Microsoft. You know, they were working on Word and 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 Excel and Windows, and you know, almost everybody else was working on something that everybody was using every day. And uh, uh, for project, it was an important 
um, product, but it wasn't um, uh, for it was for a certain uh, class of people and not for everyone. So I said, okay, I gotta I gotta work on something that everybody's gonna use. So um, I came up with a a product plan, um, pitched it to Bill Gates in a meeting. I was very nervous. I was very young still and very nervous. <laughs> I was probably 31, 32 or something. And um, uh, and then um, he. Uh, he decided to fund it. So that started Outlook with 13 people, uh, I think back in like 1992. Wow. And Outlook is another, I mean, today the users of Outlook, hundreds of millions of users. So that turned out to be pretty great. And I'll come to Teams, which is your third one also yeah. um, in, a, in a second. So you talked about Bill G, uh, Bill Gates. Um, is there any one thing that stands out in terms of working closely with him um, or being in reviews with him? I've been in a couple of meetings with him, but I i mean, the bill of that Esther years were completely different, I heard, than he is. <laughs> yeah, he mellowed out a lot, like 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 a lot of us once once he had kids. Um, he was quite brutal and it was a brutal culture, but I I liked that. I appreciated, you know, it, he was honest and uh, you didn't have to worry about um, what is he really thinking? He told you what he was really thinking, but uh, I thought it was, you know, great in his leadership style. Yeah, I think Microsoft's been blessed with three fantastic leaders who each were really uh, well suited to their eras and at the beginning, you know, it was a rough and tumble time in the industry and uh, Bill had brutal feedback, but I think what was also really great was that he had a focus on the long term. And that's one of the, you know, life lessons I've I've, I've really learned from him is, he, you know, if you had a trade off of, of a short term win versus laying an even stronger foundation for uh, more long term success, he encourage that and um, so so that was really great actually. Pretty awesome. I mean I, those are those are some of the insights that I would love to tap into a little bit more maybe at some point in the future, but that is great. Thank you, Brian. Moving along, moving us along, right? Um, how did teams happen? Can you tell the inside story of teams as much as you can? Uh, I have it in my notes here. Yeah, that you took um, a bunch of engineers on a hike in Hawaii and <laughs> Las Vegas. <laughs> Tell yeah, what happened. yeah, well, it would, you know, it was there was just some ideas. Um, uh, you know, I was working for a gentleman named uh, Chi Lu, who was another fantastic uh, leader in many areas, and he's really the the thought leader behind um, what is now the Microsoft Graph, uh, amongst many other things. But we were both both lamenting that, you, you know. Outlook was get still super important, getting a little long in years, not necessarily uh, capable of being the the only tool for communication. We had Skype for business, but it wasn't it wasn't really used um, in a continuing modern a way for communication. So we decided, you know, they really we both thought they really needed to be um, an advancement and and a new generation of uh, a grounds up communication tool for for Microsoft and. I really thought, you know, chat needed to be a part of that. You know, I, I think I was really believing in this um, continual evolution of of uh, the change in uh, the rate of communication and the size. Like if you think about, you know, what happened when we moved from writing letters to email, 
two things really happened. Um, the volume of communication like skyrocketed. You you would write far more emails in a week than letters that you would write, and they would be in smaller sizes. So you'd write you know a lot more often in in a smaller smaller um, volume per message. And then the same thing, you know, is clearly happening in chat. You'll send far more. The average person will send far more emails in in uh, far more chats than emails and in smaller sizes. And we wanted to to create um, a next generation experience that could complement Outlook. We didn't believe in in replacing email, but Outlook was almost so successful. It's getting to be a victim of its own success and kind of being used and abused because it was the, the only thing people could really um, count on. It was, it was getting getting overused for you know casual conversation and other things that that maybe were were um, uh, best done elsewhere. So we wanted to to sort of recreate that. And then I also had this idea kicking around um, of. Uh, you know, really wanting to do communication, um, a product that, that was really about creating a space for people to, to work, but anchored in communication. So it wasn't just about the chat stream. And this is one of the real unique things of Teams relative to a Slack or, or others, um, is, is that it's really not just about chatting with a group of people. It's really about having a workspace across a lot with a lot of different objects and a lot of different workloads and that workspace being anchored in chat. And that's why the initial product that um, we started creating, our internal code name was TeamSpace. And I was even kind of hoping maybe that would be the actual product name, but I'm, you know, in the end, um, uh, Microsoft Teams was chosen as a good name, but TeamSpace was really the, the concept. And that was the thing that, um, the idea that we launched uh, the Teams project with. Got it. No, that is fantastic journey, Brian. I mean, it says one one thing is to actually uh, envision what the product would look like. The other is to be able to take it and 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 within within a company like Microsoft to scale. And just for some statistics for the for the listeners, right? Teams adoption actually clocked seventy five million daily active users, clocking more than two hundred million plus meeting participants in a day. 5 billion mating calls, if you will, and uh, students and teachers across the globe as they move to remote learning. They have over 180,000 educational institutions in 175 countries using Teams for Education. That is mind-boggling. Can you talk a little bit about, and this is this is one of the key lessons I would say a lot of listeners would, would benefit from. How do you take a product which was a fledgling product and scale it and span it to an extent that spans enterprise customers to educational institutions to government agencies at such scale. How did that happen? Yeah, I think um, you know it goes back even back to project about a philosophy I have with developing software, which is like don't make a solution, make a toolkit for many solutions. Mm. And that was actually if we go back to project, that was really the key thing that that made project successful what was happening before microsoft project you know the the typical way that that um, project management software was developed was that that um, a 
there was a lot of consultants. The consultants would have a methodology. They'd have some success in selling their project management methodology to certain enterprise customers. And then they'd hire a team of developers and code up their methodology and go take it and say, okay, here, you, you know, go do project management our way. We've got a, a great solution. It was, you know, well done, but but fixed and limited. And what we saw, there was a bunch of people that just didn't want to do that. Like Boeing doesn't want to be told how to run software with somebody else's, run projects with somebody else's methodology. Mm. And so the, you know, the insight and the thing that we created was rather than saying, okay, here is a project management solution and here's a way that you calculate and things. And instead, let's make a toolkit and turn project management into productivity software you're do you're already every enterprise has their own system and it's not even just about how they compute things but even um the symbology and the terminology and and, and things we built a toolkit for project management to do it your way and so you could customize even the labels the same the, the same sort of function and computation might be called three different things in three different companies that building that toolkit to do things your way that really changed how people approached um, project management and uh you know i think the 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 industry had like seven or so main uh competitors in in, in the category nobody really had more than 15 or 20 percent uh market share after within a year of microsoft project launching the whole market size doubled and Microsoft Project had 70% of that. So, you know, yeah. that really stuck with me that like, hey, you know, you can just get a lot more scale by by building a, a toolkit for um, other people to do things with. With Teams, you know, we I think we saw there was, you know, two big trends and things that, that companies wanted to achieve beyond just better communication, which was, um, digital transformation and cultural transformation. And so we tried to provide a toolkit so that companies could accomplish that above and beyond just better communication. So, you know, and then that's that digital transformation is be able to 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 take a lot of what they're um, doing in, in analog ways and different processes and reimagine that digitally and in the context of a team. And then also for the cultural uh, transformation to be able to um, achieve those goals and a lot of a lot of companies had had goals around you know not just more frequent communication but also uh, just new ways of of working together and I think a greater appreciation for harmony and uh, you know that's a big part of Satya's success at, at, at Microsoft is uh, you know, appealing to those who want, uh, you know, a kinder and gentler world, but also, um, you know, less formality in, um, uh, and that's something that, you know, chat provides in addition, sort of a less, a less formal um, uh, way to communicate in the same way that email was a bit less formal than letterhead and, and, and uh, letters. So we tried to provide a toolkit for cultural and digital transformation in teams, and that allowed teams to apply to a lot more situations and feel sort of more local and scale between, you know, it's being used in, you know, retail stores with, with um, 
frontline workers up to to schools across the world from I'm shocked down to you know, <laughs> second graders up to, to higher ed and then all across um, the enterprise. Well, that is fascinating, Brian. That's absolutely fascinating in terms of, hey, you know, you just don't build an application, but you build a toolkit that actually evolves into a platform as well. And this goes back to the genesis of Microsoft too, right? Which is, it's more of a platform company. You build a platform that you actually have others build on top of it. And also it's a toolkit. It's not just a singular app, if you will. Right. Um, that's great. Um, hey, switching to a little bit on the lighter side, Brian, um, I know I would have loved to talk and 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 known about this before you retired, so to speak. But uh, let's talk a little bit about your. Uh, you know, I always want to get into the habits and rituals of people and uh, who are successful. On an ideal morning, what time do you wake up? What does your first sixty minutes look like? What do you do? Do you look at your phone first? Do you? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, says he puts on his jogging shoes and starts running. So what do you do? Yeah, I, I would love to start running. I'm, I, I was <laughs> hoping to get into um, slightly better shape. I'm at least trying to get my ten thousand steps a day. But you no, know, when I when I get up in the morning, um, actually I'm still in the habit of the first thing I do is um, look at the team's numbers. Um, the growth is incredible. You mentioned a set of statistics. Of course, that's a while announced, publicly announced a while back. Uh, the numbers keep growing incredibly. So I'm a little addicted to wake up in the morning and see what happened um, overnight, which is mostly the result of um, overnight Europe woke up and, sure. and started using the world in the end of the, the Asian day. Um, and, uh, and that's also based on um, you know, a habit that Steve Ballmer instilled. You know, he was the master of making sure that everybody was always on top of their numbers. Mm. And uh, so I just, I'm still trying to stay on top of my numbers because as you mentioned, I'm still consulting for Microsoft, both on Teams and other other projects uh, around the, the company. But then the main thing I do in, in the morning um, is, is just, I try to read uh, three or four newspapers and get a diverse perspective on what's uh, what's going on around the world. And uh, and then 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 the day starts. Right on. Uh, that's that's good advice in terms of reading as well as looking at your numbers, knowing your numbers. Um, along those lines, Brian, one thing I wanted to dig a little bit into is uh, it's it's not easy to just do one big hit of a product. You've done three of those more if you count Bing and Search. And by the way, the MSN sports app um, is still the best sports app that I use on my phone, which is thanks. <laughs> uh, it's a lesser known fact that came from your stable <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, so one quick thing, what would you say is your superpower, if you will? Um, so one thing is on the superpower. What is your superpower? And also, what is what is a bad habit that you're working on right now or you've been working on over the years? Uh, I have I have several, but um, <laughs> I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about superpower, but I do think, um, and I guess partially it comes from Bill Gates thinking long term. But you know, I just start with the ideal outcome, even if it seems like too audacious to imagine, and then just work back from that. I think, of, and I, I I do see often other people just thinking a little too incrementally, like let's 
you know, go with what's what's achievable or what we know how to do. And I think, you know, that just doesn't always um, uh, work, especially at Microsoft at this point. You know, Microsoft doesn't benefit from someone batting for a single, you know, the size. I mean, all these tech giants, trillion dollar companies now, you know, even home runs mm. aren't that meaningful. Like only grand slam home runs really <laughs> move the needle at the kind of scale that's there with, with tech. So I think, you know, you've just got to start with the grand slam home run. And what would that look like? What would have to happen? What would you have to believe? What would have to happen? And then start, you know, putting the, the pieces in, in place and then and then really getting a diverse team uh, to 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 build that, and I don't just mean um, ethnic diversity, but you know, in different skill sets um, uh, of uh, from from design to people that really want to, you know, push a, a fast speed of coding and many things, and then just motivating the the team for that. Got it. And then it, it's interesting that you say uh, talking about what you said about you know, hey, long term thinking, like marathon versus sprint and i've heard that from a lot of people um and you you said that came from bill gates um what who are some of the two or three people who have had the most influence on you as you as you were growing up as well as your career um brian i know you mentioned some obvious names but i want to dig a little deeper in terms of saying hey what did you learn from them and what are some of the key habits that you developed um as as your career progressed yeah i guess um yeah probably i mean it's still that bill bill and steve you know that was the generation that i grew up with they certainly um as far as microsoft um were uh, the ones that have influenced me the most you know we talked about yeah but there's also a style from 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 bill that yeah. um i've learned that i think i kind of repeat um which is uh, to do pretty hardcore reviews, always be brutal and honest in the feedback. But the other thing that's really, really important that he provided was always provide a point of view. Mm. So, you know, this is really different than I see a lot of leaders. So I want to empower my team. I don't want to come in and I'm not going to give any opinion. I'm not going to have, uh, I'm not going to have any preconceived notion. Bill would always come in and just, you know, maybe right off the bat or, very quickly he had a point strong point of view and that often really helps a team instead of coming in and it's a blank a blank uh, page and i think if you're a leader you've got to always have a plan mm. and and so what i learned from him is you know that's incumbent on me to have a default plan it doesn't but then at the same time you've got to be super open about um listening to other people to have a different plan but to 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 at least have a point of view on every topic and anything that is being presented to you you know one then there's there's something that other people can work from and try to adjust up or up or down but you you know at least um you know they've got something they you know ideas and concepts and opinions and points of view that they can build off of and I think that's that's actually very very important to have, and uh, so so that was probably one of the the top things that I I learned from from Bill that I that I still apply. And you know you mentioned about sort of bad habits and like <laughs> you know, the flip side of that is you know 
it can lead you down um, a uh, um, a reputation for micromanagement. If you come in, then you always have an opinion, you know. And yep. you know, Satya preaches a lot about hey, be a a a learn it all, not a know it all. And so there's you know there's fine lines in in this, and there can be you know mis it's easy to have misconceptions about you if if you're always sort of full of an opinion. You've got to to then you, you know it forces you to kind of have to over index on making sure people are comfortable offering an alternate opinion back to you um and you know bill really listened to people i think you know could always have improved maybe about making sure that people were not too intimidated so sometimes what you've got to do is is have the strong opinion but really try to pull out alternate opinions and make sure that people are really comfortable disagreeing with you and then the thing that I tried to do in that is I might have a strong opinion, but then I don't want to leave the room without consensus, mm. uh, even if that makes the meeting take twice as long. Uh, and the thing that you know, I'll have a strong opinion, but then what I don't want to do is have people feel like, um, okay, you know, I just made a call. Like I, I tried to never say, okay, well, I'm the leader. I'm going to make a call. It's it's like we're going to make a call together and. People, lots of times people push back and say, oh, that's, you know, I can't do that or you shouldn't be doing that. It's not efficient. And, you know, what I've found is it takes more time up front to, to always try to have consensus. But the beauty of leaving a room with, with consensus, one, is more people feel like, hey, at least I got heard. I got, even if it didn't really go my way, I got my point across. So people feel better about the decision. But the main thing is that, you know, the decisions tend to stick. So, you know, you may, if you make a decision and it wasn't really consensus and everybody didn't get heard and then other points of view that sort of finally rolled out sort of, sort of later and you change, that's super efficient to change your plan of record down the road like the, the you know the earlier in in the process that that you make your key decisions the better and then also the more that everyone's bought into them because it's not just about the people in the room but they've got to sell that decision to the people below them so i really believe that investing in consensus is super super important yeah thanks brian that is that's those are great nuggets uh healthy dissension right in uh, with, with the team but at the same time healthy dissension driving to consensus and a great uh diverse set of ideas that leads to decision making awesome so in fact i had one of the questions that i was um, teeing up to ask you was i think you answered that what are the most what is the most common misconception about you um I, I, I think you mentioned that in the context of, hey, the being hard on meetings and being able to just, you know, have an opinion and how that could get misconstrued. Is there anything else that is more of a myth than <laughs> not? Not. Yeah, myth? I think that's probably the main thing. You know, it's just, you know, the, the strong, the more opinionated you are, the more people feel like then you want to be the dictator. So you've just got to <laughs> over, you've got to overachieve on making people comfortable. And, uh, you know, that's also, you know, we talked about the, you know, the beauty of chat and less formal yeah. communication and things is often I'll, I'll follow up, you know, right after a meeting and just ask, but hey, are you, you just want to make sure that you're okay with that? You know, we decided on this and, and um, I know you were against it before. Just, you know, people appreciate that type of thing or, or also just 
if someone pushed back in a meeting, just outside of the meeting, reaffirming with the, hey, I'm glad you, you offered that uh, point of view, or, or um, and especially if they changed um, uh, and, you know, I came in with some strong opinion and, and the consensus ended up being around somebody else's opinion, just um, reminding them that they, hey, you really changed the outcome. It's a better outcome. We're all bought into it. That encourages them to 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 push back more in 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 the future because sometimes even if if a leader sort of is perceived as losing in, in an argument you know what <laughs> or a discussion uh you know people they might both feel like okay hey well my point of view was was sort of ended up being the decision that's great but they're worried about whether you know how much they should do that in the future so being having a leader reinforce that it was good that that someone disagreed with them that makes them that much more comfortable to push back um, in the future which is what all leaders should want that's awesome advice thank you brian switching gears brian what is um, so one thing that i try to do is uh, hey what is you know what is a hundred dollar or less <laughs> purchase that you made recently or any time that has most impacted your life. For example, over the course of the last six months, um, I, I mean, although a little more than $100, I spent, I, I borrowed a pair of AirPods that mm. completely changed in terms of how I do meetings. I walk and talk one-on-ones. I don't sit at my desk. Um, I, I take a walk outside. I can listen to podcasts and music and so on and so forth. Although it was quite obvious but I was pretty stubborn in terms of sitting at my desk, but the airport changed it. What what for you has? Um, probably, that's an probably, I mean, it's yeah, it's probably slightly more than a hundred dollars, at least the first one. But they're they're close to that. I think the biggest life changing purchase for for me is um, a Kindle, mm. and uh, you know I just think it's it's uh, I think it's very important. Um, and having a good career and being well read and i really believe that um, you can read faster and um you'll you'll end up reading a, a more diverse um set of of books and you'll just end up doing more reading for a variety of reasons if you have a kindle i mean i used to carry like when I was on a flight, you know, a backpack full of books uh, <laughs> on a vacation or something. It's just super hard. And then, um, you, you know, sometimes you change and even you bring five books and you decide, ah, I'm not, you, you know, you start to and you, know, you don't get interested in anyone. It's wonderful to, you know, bring a device. You've got 500 books. Um, I think the, you know, on the Kindle, I said, oh, you got, you know, you're 75% done. You're like motivated. You know, I got oh, I got 13 minutes left in the chapter. I'm not going to stop now. I'm going to, you know, finish and and read that that chapter. You know, one of the things that Bill Gates um, uh, now is in, uh, is always talking about is hey, you, you know, when you sit down to read, try to you know read for an hour. And I think you know, trying to make sure that you don't just it's it's easy to get distracted and uh, you know we all live in these multitasking worlds and so you know the kindle just reminds you you know how much time you've got left what percentage you're done how much time you've left in the book or the chapter uh, and then and then also it's sometimes in super interesting there's certain books that are long slogs and you know it's it's interesting to, to be able to switch back and forth at times maybe always have a fiction and a non-fiction that you're reading simultaneously or sometimes there's some 
big long slog um, uh, nonfiction book and and you know maybe reading multiple is good. So anyway, and then and then you can carry a lot of newspapers on a Kindle as well. So I think a Kindle is is super important. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, that's one of my other uh, sub hundred dollar investment as well. So talking about books, Brian, um, what was the last book that you read that you would recommend highly? And are there any particular types of books or books that you have often gifted or given to people? Yeah, um, you know, I'm often what well, well, one I've often given, um, but it's just kind of an interesting story too. It's um, uh, of uh, uh, two books that I gave one one to Bill Gates and one to Melinda. Um, we were out to dinner with them, my wife and I, and, and talking a lot about books, and they didn't have a lot of time to explore different things. And there was two books I recommended. Um, Bill was very interested in uh, the game Go and uh, Japanese culture. And uh, I gave him a book um, by uh, Yasunori Kawabata called The Masters of Go, which mm -hmm. was his time uh, as a, a newspaper reporter covering a top Go tournament. Uh, really super interesting uh, book. Um, and then to Melinda, um, a book by uh, Yuki, also Japanese author, um, Kawabata and Mishima, along with another guy, um, Ten Junichiro Tenazaki. They're kind of the three classic Japanese authors of the 20th uh, century that I just really love. But uh, Mishima's book, Spring Snow, is just probably the most beautiful sort of love story book. And she was interested in that uh, that I've ever read. And so I gave, I gave her uh, uh, that book for more recent books um uh, actually one one book isn't so recent but it's it's probably the one i the nonfiction book that i recommend most frequently is um wild swans by jung chang and it's about um three generations of of chinese women kind of going through uh all of all of the 20th century changes in 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 china you know through the time of mao and i always kind of wonder why it, how did how did uh, um, Mao and, and communism defeat Chiang Kai-shek and and uh, uh, the KMT? And it's 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 all there. And then how through the Cultural Revolution? And it's just a beautifully written book. A little a little sad in how humans will treat other humans, but um, gives you an incredible perspective on you know re relatively recent Chinese history. And then that's for nonfiction. And then for fiction, there's a book, uh, Pachinko, that is uh, uh, one of the award-winning books of the last, most award-winning in the last couple of years by Min Jin Lee. And it's about um, uh, the experience of, of Koreans living in Japan and uh, uh, during World War II and, and, and after. And, some of the the biases and what they have to uh, endure, and it's also beautifully written. Uh, gives you a little bit of perspective on on um, uh, Korean history too. That's interesting. Got it. That's awesome. Wild Swan. I haven't uh, I haven't read that. I'll, I'll, I'll bookmark. It. I'll make sure that uh, I'll, I'll look it up. Thanks, Brian. So moving along, Brian. Given your tenure in this industry, right? What advice would you offer to someone who is starting out as a developer or a PM? Is there any particular track or area that you would recommend aspiring kids who start out? Uh, what, any thoughts, advice? Uh, 
Lessons. Yeah, I guess, I guess there's several. Um, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to try to, I, I think I'd encourage people to try to make, not just learn, but make make money right away too. on And, and not to, because <laughs> it's important yeah. to earn the money, yeah. but, but because if you've got to do something for a, um, a financial reward that forces you to really know whether you're doing something worthwhile or not. And I think it's it's too easy if you're dabbling to be, you know, impressed with your accomplishment and, and um, you know, if you're getting paid for, for something or if you're, you know, coming up with your own uh, business idea and, and that's, you know, for commercial value, it, it, it just it forces early on. You just learn a lot about the clarity of, of, of decision making because it's it's Darwinian. You know, you're gonna if if there's if there's dollars attached to it, it's 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 you know really got to work. Um, and then um, the the other thing is not just learning about your computer science, but for everyone, for anyone in the industry. Um, the data science now is is super important and and even not just in the industry, but just in life. You know, one of the, the tragedies of our modern world is, you know, the lack, I think, of of a pure foundation in, in you know, every um, everybody just kind of changes the denominator to um, uh, to match their their opinion or their their talking point and uh, uh, you know, you just look at, we can't even have a, in the COVID crisis, really a, a valid discussion of what's working or or not working because there's not even any, you know, standard agreement on, on and, and just terrible data uh, on, on you know, what's, what's happening, even to the degree of, you know, did someone die from COVID or not is not like a, a standardized thing. So anyway, um, data science is super, super, important and impacts so much of how products are developed now and I think you know you've you've got to learn that alongside all the the programming in and design abilities you got it data science focus on data science and also make sure that you have whatever you're doing is worthwhile it's it's uh, it's not just something that's a pure passion play but also you know has some financial reward yeah but well because it's because really it's more like you have to have some way for an independent person that's really you know keeping score of whether what you're doing you just you just learn something differently from that so it's not about actually important yeah. that you start earning a little extra cash on the side but it's it's Absolutely. more like it forces a different um type of of thinking that you do and a different type of 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 discipline that will serve you serve you well later in life. That's pretty awesome. Thank you, Brian. Along those lines, Brian, there's one other question, which is, hey, what is uh, what is one thing that you believe in that other people think is insane, or <laughs> or what is one thing that's absurd but you love doing? What could be anything? I know you told me a few things in, in one of the dinner conversations and whatnot about food, but anything else? That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I believe in 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 trying anything that to eat anything that anyone any other human on the planet eats. You know, to try it once, um, just to experience it. I mean, in terms of like 
but just any idea that if people insane, you know, what one <laughs> one thing I you know complete off the topic of 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 software, but um, you know, I believe in in uh, building a wall at our southern border, but it's to protect the Mexicans. And when I say that, people go, "What?" <laughs> and um, uh, you, you know, what do you, what do you mean? And you, you know, I think it's it's you know, Mexican culture is wonderful. They're wonderful people. I think what's happened in and what's happening now in um, the chaos in in the northern um, states of 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 Mexico with the uh, the gangs and the drug lords and stuff is is really unfortunate for a wonderful people. And I think the United States really needs to step up and and take more responsibility for you, you know our negative impact on our wonderful neighbors to the south. And you know uh, a lot of the the violence is coming from guns that are flowing from us down to them, and then the market that we enable with it with um, unenforced borders for their drugs to to flow north. I'd like to see that um, stopped and and um, uh, and uh, you know Mexico's just such a wonderful country and it, it um, uh, their economy could be growing so much more if if they didn't have to deal with um, the instability and it's it's a it's a tough life and a lot of people are who live in in those northern states are are scared so I would put up a wall. To, to protect them and make us pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's uh, that's really something which is. Uh, yeah, and a lot of people think, think that's insane. So I think that's that's that <laughs> some people would qualify that as insane. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks for sharing that openly. I, I I never thought about it. I think it's a think about a different point of view. That's great. Brian, switching gears one more, right? Uh, given where you are at, as well as, uh, I mean, knowing this from you, uh, I have two related questions. One is I'll, I'll talk about in general, I, I want to ask about what does balance mean to you in terms of work-life balance? And here's one quote from the Dalai Lama. That's my favorite. Man surprised me most about humanity because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. By the way, the reference to man and he versus woman, this is this is a direct quote. Um, and then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's going to never, never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So that's that's a great quote that I like in terms of hey we always constantly keep worrying in terms of working all the time and you know and not really being in the present. What does balance mean to you, Brian? I know you've been through the uh, you know the insane period and, and some of this yeah. is really high pressure. Yeah, what? that's that's a that's a great quote. You know, I think part of it is is um, and this relates back to you know what we were discussing earlier about how. Um, companies are trying to enable cultural transformation. I think the workers for today, there's there's a difference of expectations where, you know, in my generation when I started out working, you know, you worked to live, whereas now people want to live at work. And I think that's very positive in that that um, what you don't want is to have to be set up so that that um, your work life 
you have to have balance. It's it's the negative, so you have to have balance, you know, on your other side. If if you're um, you're enjoying your life at work as much as your life at at home, then you know you don't you don't have this need like oh okay I'm exhausted now and now I've got to you know balance my myself out. So I think you know making sure that you set yourself up to to um, do something that you love that um, you know doesn't really feel like like work. Um, you know, I remember just being so excited um, to work that I'd catch myself. I was my office was on the third floor of a building at Microsoft and, uh, you know, it's faster to take the stairs on it. I just catch myself like not mean you, but I was running up the stairs <laughs> getting into work just because I wanted to get started so much because <laughs> it was just so great. Uh, and, and, you know, that's what it's like being a part of a, a great product that you, you know, you really enjoy working on. So I think you know the most important thing for balance is is to be be in a in a job where you don't feel like you're you're creating some balanced deficit with with uh, your work life got it no yeah i think i think that the, that that part which is hey with uh, the work culture being uh you work to live to you live at work and that takes a different meaning in terms of today's culture. And yeah. the advice that you have is, uh, hey, you know, love what you do. If you love what you do, it doesn't feel like work. And also make sure that you are enjoying the moment and there is there is actually a balance. Yeah, and then the the other you know piece of advice that another um, Microsoft leader, um, Jeff Rakes, who ran Microsoft Salesforce, he was giving me about work-life balance. I think was good is like, hey, you know, at Microsoft and many other companies, especially the tech world, you know, you're really you, you approach your work life with incredible intensity and focus. And uh, so, you know, you just have to be willing in order to get balance at times to to have the same focus in your personal life. And his example to me was, you know, he's having to spend a lot of time traveling all over the world, running the, the, the sales force, he really loves golf. Um, you, you know, he wanted to golf more, but how does he golf when he's like traveling all the time? Well, he just said, I'm always taking my golf clubs. Um, <laughs> everywhere I go, every plane ride, I've got my golf clubs. And then, you know, if they're always right there, yeah, it's a, it's a burden. It's sort of a hassle. But then, like, I'll find some way to, that's my passion in life. I'll find some way to, to jam it in. And, you know, the thing I learned from that is like, yeah, I want to, gee, I want to travel somewhere instead of saying, well, you know, I'm working so hard. I mean, there were some years um, in building project. There was one year where I took um, 4th of July off and Christmas, but otherwise worked every single day, you know, every single weekend. Wow. There was only two days of the 365 where, you know, where I didn't work. So at times it was, it, you know, the industry used to be more intense like that. But, you know, I didn't have much time to travel, but I had a passion for it. And I said, well, you know, screw it. Um, I've got an extended weekend. I started, my wife and I, we started um, just visiting Europe from Seattle uh, in a four-day weekend. We had a, you know, three-day weekend with Labor Day or something, took one day, you know, and it's like, that's a long way to go for four days. We once went to um, Australia for five days, and but it's like, well, but we'd been there and yeah. seen what it was like, and yeah, we wish it was three weeks, but it was better to to go there and experience it than not at all. So I think you know, approaching 
your personal life with the same intensity as your work life, you can accomplish um, uh, more of your your um, goals and, and, and bucket list uh, that way. You just got to be willing to lean in it, lean into it with the same intensity you bring to work. No, it's a great one on work life balance or, or overall balance. The one thing that I heard from Satya um, that he keeps referring to, which I think is also uh, pretty some you know something which is valuable to me. He often says like, hey, find your purpose and use Microsoft as a platform mm. to be able to drive that purpose. Even within, weave that as a part of your work and then you, you actually have a purpose even outside of your main work and leveraging and using Microsoft as a platform, which. Yeah, that's, that's a great one. Yeah, which was actually an awesome one. So Brian, a final question. I know we want to go along, uh, but we have everything has to come to an end. We have I know you have limited time. I want to respect that. Um, a final question before we wrap up. What is the best advice that you ever got? And what's the biggest lesson that you learned? In other words, I want to I want to tap into your API that others can leverage and write their own app, if you will. Yeah, probably from from Actually, this is from Steve Ballmer now, which is really about um, in, in the tech world, people tend to come up with the the um, great product ideas, but not necessarily the business ideas. And so the thing that's sort of guided me is for, from Ballmer is to always be thinking about um, the business side right at the same time as as the product side and i think balmer was just a fantastic business leader he had a lot of business innovations on licensing um approaches and 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 other things and we we tended as we started out at microsoft to always um just be focused on the technology with that okay we we build these products they're just a package product people buy there's not even anything to think about from a, a business standpoint but um what I started changing was realizing that that um, the business context and you know the real flow of how people would acquire and pay for the product and how to develop that into a machine was you know equally important um, for for success um, because you've you've got to you know you got to have an audience that that. Um, provides the value for what you what what you're doing and so uh i think i think steve Ballmer taught a lot of us uh, that at, at microsoft and it's been key to our success that's fantastic great note to end with brian thank you so much 